0: We have with us today, Michael Cholby. He is Chair in Philosophy at University of Edinburgh. He has authored many things including Suicide, the Philosophical Dimension. He's also the founder of the International Association for the Philosophy of Death and Dying. His new book is Grief, a Philosophical Guide and that is our topic today. Welcome Professor
1: Cholby. Thanks very much, I really appreciate the invitation.
0: Uh, Good, well, uh, you know to the start how common uh... is the portrayal of grief in arts and literature but it's not much addressed or well addressed by philosophers why is that?
1: Well I have my suspicions about that. I mean it's certainly true that Greece has been a subject of uh, much investigation, much representation in virtually every artistic medium. Literature, Uh, it's sort of mainstay, right, of poetry. Uh, Indeed, you know, sort of the perhaps the very first uh, texts that we've been able to recover from from early human history. The Epic of Gilgamesh is is a work about grief in some ways. So it's really quite ever present in the arts, but not um, historically, at least, been a very prominent investigation, uh, area of investigation for philosophers. I'm not sure entirely why, but I think one of the reasons that uh, philosophers have shied away from it is that in certain ways, uh, grief represents, if you hold certain philosophical views, at least a kind of, uh, failure of character. So when you look, for example, at, um, certain of the ancient, uh, philosophers in the, in the Greek and Roman traditions, they certainly seem to think that, uh, Grief was an indication that you had been living your life or have been living your life in a way that makes you too dependent on other people and too vulnerable uh, to uh, facts and realities outside of yourself. And for these philosophers, for example, the Stoics, um, the virtuous life is the one in which you are not dependent upon other people or vulnerable to uh, facts and realities outside yourself. The, the virtuous life is the self-sufficient life. And so I think one of the reasons that uh, philosophers have shied away from uh, investigating grief too much is that perhaps they just don't think it's a very interesting phenomenon, right? I mean, if it's, if it's simply a kind of indication that your, your life has gone badly or that you have the wrong kind of orientation toward your life, then you know, what, what good is there to be found by investigating it? I think another reason is that it's just a very complicated um, emotion or emotional condition to theorize about, and uh, philosophers in the sort of late 20th century kind of rediscovered the emotions as a subject of investigation. Um, you know, you saw really prominent philosophers, Robert Solomon, Martha Nussbaum, many others, writing extensively about the emotions in the late 20th and early 21st century. But despite that, I think grief um, was still a, uh, a topic that um, existing philosophical uh, theories of the emotions had trouble dealing with. After all, grief has at its heart, I suppose, a kind of sorrow or sadness, but there are many other emotions that people undergo in the course of a grief episode. People are known to undergo uh, you know, guilt or anxiety or confusion, um, you know, occasionally resentment, even joyfulness. And so part of the difficulty I think the philosophers have, have faced is trying to sort of get a handle right on, on how to make sense of this very uh, diverse and complex emotional experience. So I, those are two reasons, but I also just maybe think in the end, you know, uh, uh, philosophers have been so preoccupied in some ways with, you know, trying to make sense of, of the happy life that maybe they haven't spent enough time thinking about the, the ways uh, in which our lives can, can seem to go off, off track and, and, you know, events in our lives that are perhaps detrimental to well-being. Um, so it's hard to say, but those would be a few considerations I would put forth.
0: Yeah, you have a, uh, an episode on one thinker uh, struggling with grief, having actually a, a complicated relationship to the grief he suffered. What happened to C.S. Lewis in 1960?
1: Well, the short answer is that C.S. Lewis's wife, uh, Joy Davidman, died. Um, and uh, it's a very fascinating episode, I think, in terms of um, thinking about how philosophers have related to grief. Um, you know, Lewis met Davidman at a relatively late point in his life. He was not a young man at this point. He was certainly a well-established scholar, uh, you know, world renowned for his um, you know writings on Christianity and also his writings on fiction. You know, most notably, uh, you know, the Chronicle of Chronicles of Varnia series. So he was not a young man when he met Joy Davidman, but you know, he clearly uh, you know fell in love with her, and uh, this was a very transformative event in the middle of his life. And then she develops cancer and, uh, you know, succumbs to it uh, after about a year or two. And um, after her death, uh, Lewis began keeping a diary of his experiences, of his grief experiences. And um, this was, perhaps unintentionally by Lewis, I would suppose, you know, a very interesting uh, literary artifact, too, right? It wasn't, uh, I think, intended to be a... um, A published work, but it contained a lot of um, insights and very uh, poignant representations of his own grief experience. But um, interestingly enough, uh, it was not published during his lifetime. I think it's interesting to think about why that is. I I suspect one reason is that the representation of Lewis that comes through in this little diary, which was published uh, under the title of Grief Observed, is very different, I suppose, from the way he was seen in the public eye. Uh, C.S. Lewis almost has, I think, a a kind of uh, near breakdown, right, due to grief. He finds himself uh, almost at a loss, right, trying to figure out how to make sense of himself and the world. He finds himself uh, alienated from his own body, right? He says he finds his own body a kind of unrecognizable husk. Uh, He finds himself um, in a state of, I suppose, kind of uh, ennui or lethargy, kind of unmotivated to... um, To pursue ordinary things. Uh, I suppose nowadays you might think of that as emblematic of maybe a depressive episode. Uh, It causes a bit of a crisis of faith. How could the God that that, that Lewis believes in um, permit this woman that he very clearly adored uh, to to leave him? So it's interesting to think about Lewis as an example of, of a philosopher, right? I think Lewis was a philosopher grappling with grief, I don't think he quite had the audacity, or maybe his publisher didn't have the audacity to put these um, observations about grief out there uh, in the world while he was alive. They were only published posthumously. But it's a very vivid representation, I think, of the way in which grief is not just, I think, emotionally trying, but can be almost a kind of fracture in, in the self. Yeah.
0: You, you know that the phrase uh, that her death made him feel, quote, a stranger to himself. You, you, you suggested that a, a few moments ago. Now, it's interesting that he didn't, He didn't want these writings on grief published during his lifetime, but he didn't destroy them. He kept them, he he wanted them, he he did want the record to be out there in some way after his death, correct?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. You'd have to look at the Lewis biographies. I'm not a biographer of Lewis, so I probably am not the best source for for the details there, but it is interesting to note that he didn't, uh, as you say, destroy them, right? He didn't uh, think that they were, I suppose, so... I don't know, uh, shameful or, or laughable or ridiculous that he um, that he wanted them to be uh, sort of expunged from the record, so to speak. Um, but either he or, or his uh, you know publisher or, or literary circle uh, sort of held off right on publishing uh, these until after his death. And his death only came a couple of years later. And I believe that the uh, A Grief Observed first appeared around 1968 or 69. Um so initially, of course, it's also published under a pseudonym, so we didn't know it was Lewis, yeah. um, at least initially. So, hmm.
0: Yeah. You, you mentioned that uh, a psychologist would look at this as sort of a, a depressive uh, episode, that there could be a clinical diagnosis of depression. And psychologists certainly address grief all the time. Uh, this gets yeah. back to really the, 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 the goal of your book. Uh, what can philosophers say about grief? What can they understand about grief that people trained in, in other fields, professionalized into other fields might, might miss?
1: Well, let me begin by saying that I think it's important and valuable that grief is a subject of multidisciplinary study. I think my own methodology in my philosophical work has been to put forth claims that seem to be at least consistent, right, with what psychologists have found about grief. I'm not um, interested in sort of arguing with the, uh, you know, with the psychological profession about grief. That said, I think any um, thoughtful psychologist or mental health professional will concede that there are certain things that their own professional training or their own uh, disciplinary uh, methods are not going to situate themselves uh, for answering. Right. psychologists um, are not particularly well situated or not you know better situated I suppose than the average person would be to think about sort of the uh, the significance of grief vis-a the meaningfulness in life or uh, the question of whether there might be a kind of moral duty to grieve or the place of grief in a you know flourishing human existence so in a way um, you know I, I in, in working on grief I'm kind of reviving I suppose the thought that um philosophy can be therapeutic even if philosophers aren't therapists in that you know present day sense of the term that it can make us feel more grounded and at home in uh, our experiences perhaps better equipped to to deal with them because we understand them more richly but um, i don't think that's something that psychology uh, foregoes or avoids but i think that's the special sort of province maybe of philosophy
0: you 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 actually t- uh, talk about your work contributing to the Process of general consolation. Mm-hmm. Would that be the way, would that be a better word than therapy here? Do you think?
1: <laughs> well, I, I uh, consolation. I, I, I don't I a mean, part to, put, of I don't the mean to put Therapy yeah. <laughs> down? Not at all. Not at all.
0: No, no, just, no. There's, there's, and I mean, a... I,
1: think it, I think it has its. It, it definitely has its place. I. I think though that it's important to keep in mind. You know, some human problems are just that. They're human problems. They're not indications that um, there's something psychologically wrong with us. Indeed, I think one important. Uh, sort of background assumption uh, and objective really of my book is to underscore and help people to appreciate that, you know, grief is not itself a problem in human life, right? It's it's sort of tool for dealing with, with a certain kind of problem in human life, but grief is not itself a problem. Um, but sort of returning again to the question of consolation, yes, I think uh, philosophy can provide a kind of consolation, but I'd also say in the case of my own work, um, a kind of reassurance, uh, is one thing I'm hoping that people will get, that people certainly, uh, you know, do survive grief, in some cases even thrive, and that a certain way we should be glad, right, that we have this uh, aspect of our of our human psyche, uh, grief, that allows us to engage with something that is admittedly difficult, right, the losses of those uh, who matter to us uh, deeply. So yes, consolation, but also I would say sort of encouragement and reassurance, too, are also on my agenda.
0: Uh, let's get into some more specific nuts and bolts in, mm-hmm. in, in, your, in your subsequent chapters. What is the difference between grief and mourning?
1: Well, the way I draw the distinction, and I will concede at the outset this is not uh, an attempt to kind of map out the ways in which those words are, are necessarily used by everyone, uh, but the way I map it out is to say that grief is, fi- is fundamentally you know, a, a psychological process that goes on within the psyches of individuals. Mourning, on the other hand, is more behavioral, right? So um, mourning is what we're doing when we are engaging in the various sorts of rituals that we associate with uh, the recognition, commemoration, et cetera, of the death of others, Uh, you know, funerals, uh, you know, writing obituaries, uh, announcing a person's death to the wider world. Grief, on the other hand, is in a certain way more personal, right? It's something that individuals do. Mourning is something I think we... Often they not necessarily do with others. It's important to keep in mind that many people who are mourning are doing that as a way of grieving. Right, their grief has, in some cases, uh, its manifest- manifestation in mourning. Uh, but it's not necessarily the case. I certainly think you can participate in mourning even if you, um, even if you're not undergoing uh, the uh, the uh, sort of psychological right difficulties of uh, of grief. Now you you mentioned that.
0: Certain requirements exist in order for us to grieve over the death of someone. And they include more than the obvious ones of love and, and intimacy. Uh, what are some of the requirements we don't typically remark, such as something you called practical identity investment?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a million-dollar philosopher term. So let me see if I can unpack it a little bit. So... I think the paradigm cases of grief are just what you were referencing a moment ago: people that we love, say our, our parents, our uh, you know children, spouses, uh, siblings, close friends, and the like. But I want to take seriously that when people uh, profess to be you know, grieving the death of, let's say, a, a pop star, a pop singer, you know, David Bowie. I think his death elicited a, a lot of grief in people several years ago, or you know, the death of of a, of a film star, or a political leader, someone like that, I want to take seriously that that's, in fact, bona fide grief. And I think the way to unite both these sort of paradigm cases, the cases where there is, say, intimacy or love or attachment, with these other sort of less paradigmatic cases where we're dealing with, say, celebrities or role models, political leaders and the like, is to say that uh, in each of these instances, these are individuals in whom we have invested our practical identity. So what does that mean? What that means, in effect, is that these are individuals that we have in some way or other uh, used as kind of anchors for our concerns and commitments and projects. So in the case of uh, the easy case, right, is say one spouse, right? It seems pretty clear that people um, who are grieving their spouses are grieving someone in whom they've invested their practical identity. They've tried to build a life with that person. They've tried to uh, fashion a durable partnership with that person. Likewise, uh, much the same to be said about grieving, uh, sadly, the death of one's children or, you know, the death of one's parents. In the case of, say, uh, grieving a political leader or a pop star or celebrity, uh, I think the identity investment is perhaps different. Um, We might look to a political leader as a source of a kind of inspiration for our own projects, right? Perhaps we were motivated to support a particular cause because of a particular leader's, uh, you know, eloquence or... uh, you know, uh, uh, energy, right. In advancing that cause. Or, uh, you know, if you, if you're say an artist and, and, you know, a particular, uh, you know, person that you've modeled your own work on dies, then you have in some sense, uh, lost someone in whom you've invested your, your practical identity in a different sense, right? You've used them as a kind of guide to your own personal development or professional development. So the thought is that we are creatures that, uh, rely upon others, presuppose the existence of others in our commitments and projects. And uh, those that we grieve are those that are fundamental, right, to our commitments and projects. This is my way of accounting for something that I think is is pretty important, right, in theorizing about grief, namely that we don't grieve the death of of everyone, right? Uh, You know, during the course of our conversation, you know, tens of thousands of people will die, and I assume neither you nor I will, will grieve them, not because we're that we're callous or unfeeling, uh, but simply because we don't stand in the right kind of relationship to them to really grieve them. So um, my uh, strategy of appealing to, to how we invest our practical identity in others is my way of trying to uh, unify, right, the, the scope of those that we grieve for and explain why it is that we grieve only for some.
0: Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You note that grief—you you suggested this uh, a while ago—the complexity of it, how things can get, how, how often, sometimes, contrary things can get mixed up in the experience of <laughs> grief. And in the book, you draw a distinction on sort of an emotion or a feeling and grief as a mood. What is the distinction you're you're marking there?
1: Well, I think one of the challenges, and this goes back to. Uh, you know, I think the very first question you were asking me about why philosophers have maybe shied away from talking too much about grief—it's uh, a difficult uh, emotional condition to get a handle on. If people know anything about, you know, scholarly work on grief, typically what they know is Elizabeth kugler rosss famous five-stage model, right? This is oh, yeah. the, uh, the, the model that says that grief progresses through uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Now, Elizabeth kugler ross Uh, you know, I think did a great deal of good, I think, in in, um, making the public more aware of grief and and stimulating scholarly work on grief. But I would say that, you know, subsequent research has shown that that particular uh, picture of grief just doesn't uh, apply to most people's, you know, grieving experiences, right? People don't go through all those five, or they go through others on, on top of those five, or they go through them in a different order and so forth. But that said, Kula Ross was onto something, right? Most people who grieve undergo more than just sort of core emotion of, of grief, which I take to be sadness or sorrow, but other kinds of emotions, uh, things like guilt and anxiety, confusion, etc. So uh, the 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 notion that uh, you know grief is a sort of complex process. I think, stands at odds with the notion that it's a mood, right? Because after all, one thing you might think is that grief seems to color, right, the rest of our uh, emotional palette, right? I mean, the person who's grieving seems to be reacting to the world in a certain sort of way, much in the way that a person reacts when they're in a certain sort of mood, right? So we think of ourselves as being in a uh, you know, irritable mood, right? Well, what are we saying? Well, I take it we're saying something like, well, we're sort of abnormally, right, susceptible to being irritated by the world. Um and one can see then a certain sort of parallel, right, between uh grief and moods insofar as grief seems to um uh, you know structure and shape how we interact with the world. But I want to deny that it's that it's a mood, in large measure because I think that unlike a mood, grief is actually directed at a particular fact in the world. Uh moods, uh, as a lot of philosophers have thought, uh, don't really seem to be about anything in particular. They often have causes. Um but grief, of course, is prompted by something quite, quite concrete and real, right? The, the death of someone in whom, uh, in my terms, we've invested in our practical identities.
0: You, you know, that goes along with what you follow up with in terms of sort of the mood grief as it has a shaping all across your experience when you're in a state of grief. Uh, that it that it changes everything, and is that why you understand grief as more of an activity? It 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 is it, it is something that it's something that happens. It's it's not like an object. You, you see, moods moods aren't really a concrete thing. You know, you 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 could say, oh well, you're suffering from depression. That, that yeah. seems to to contain, you know, to to objectify a little a little too much. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I'm sympathetic with with what you seem to be gesturing at. I would say that one of the things we should be careful about is sort of confusing nouns and verbs, right? So sure, we talk about grief, right, as if it were a kind of condition or a state. And, and oftentimes in my own work, I talk about it as a kind of condition or state of a person. I mean, in some sense, you know, that's true. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's a verb, right? Grieving is something that we do. And um, I think that grief stands, if you will, sort of between two poles on the one hand. It's clear that we don't control our grief in the sense that we might control our bodily actions, right? I mean, grief comes unbidden, right? Someone dies and, you know, we we undergo these emotions. We don't sort of choose to grieve in any sort of overt sense. Grief sort of shows up at our doorstep. And we can't exactly dictate uh, what we feel in the course of grief. On the other hand, I don't think it's a fully passive uh, experience either to give just a sort of example, right, of the ways in which people, I think, uh, shape their own grief, the way in which uh, grief is an activity. So consider the choice that, you know, faces many, uh, say, spouses after, uh, you know, their their husband or wife has died. A a choice like, uh, should I, you know, clear out the the person's belongings from our dwelling, right? I take it that's a sort of big moment oftentimes in, in people's grieving. Well, that's going to both reflect right, the course of the grief that has come before, sort of people's readiness to, uh, you know, live in a world in which those kinds of reminders of, of the loved one are no longer there. Um, that's also going to shape that subsequent grief, right, because you, once you remove those kinds of reminders from, from, your, from your dwelling, right, you know, the physical objects that you associate with, with this deceased person, that's going to shape your grief too. So what I want to invite people to, to do here is to see grief as something that we do, but it's somewhat improvisational, right? We can't dictate it in its entirety. But on the other hand, we're not passive in the face of grief either. So it's something that we can uh, adapt and, to and shape, but again, uh, something that comes to us largely unbidden.
0: Yeah. You, you know, it's something interesting here. Uh, even when you're talking about the death of, of a young person, that the grief often really uh, is focused on the pre-mortem relationship and its loss more than what one might feel in the present, oh, we could have done, we, we could be doing this together today if, 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 my, if my child were alive, or, or this might be happening today. I mean, not that that doesn't take place, of course, but much more is focused on the loss of that pre-mortem relationship. Yeah. You've, you've seen that in your work?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the most poignant examples of grief is, uh, you know, the death that uh, uh, is the grief that people feel at the death of uh, of, of unborn fetuses, right? So miscarriages, for example. Um, and in saying that we grieve the loss of relationships that we have with others, note that I'm underscoring the others, right? And the stage that those individuals, those for whom we grieve, are in their lives. So compare, you know, grieving, uh, again, say the death of the miscarried fetus to, you know, the death of of your aged grandparent, you know, someone who's, you know, 90, 95 years old, something like that, who's lived, you know, a long and fairly robust life. Well, you know, I expect that the character of our grief will differ between those two kinds of cases. And it'll differ in one very crucial sort of way. Your grandparent, you know, lived probably, uh, you know, uh, the bulk of, of the life that he or she could expect. Uh, and so much of what you might grieve for is sort of what happened to them, right? Sort of grief the grieve, uh, in response to the life that they had. Um, whereas I think in the case of, say, grieving a child or, or grieving the death of a miscarried fetus, we're kind of grieving for lost hopes, right? Grieving what might have been rather than what was. Uh, and I think that's what makes this sort of grief particularly poignant, because it seems on the one hand, to be, if you will, sort of packed full of hope. Right? You know, it's, it's sort of a response to a kind of uh, you know deep aspiration that people have to to have children and raise children and so forth. But also in certain ways, it's a very kind of uh, striking and, and deep loss, right? To lose something where the bulk of the loss consists in, right, the loss of these kinds of hopes or aspirations. You you actually
0: believe that grief can do some very important things. For the person who is grieving, one of them, one of the points you say, we can actually quote, find ourselves in and through grief. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, you know, going back again to what I was saying about uh, the scope of grief and how we grieve those in whom we've invested our practical identities. I think it's very natural for us to assume the existence of other people as we go through our lives. I mean, indeed, it would be a difficult. Uh, thing I think for human beings to sort of live with the assumption that other people, uh, you know, sort of blinker out of existence, you know, at random, right? You know, we sort of assume their existence, we presuppose them, we build uh, our lives around them. And what happens, of course, when they die is that that house that we've built, right, uh, is, if you will, threatened, right? Uh, we've sort of built uh, sort of our concerns and commitments on the assumption that someone else will exist, and when they no longer do, or at least no longer exist in the same way, then, of course, we can't, you know, live in the same house, and uh, we can't sort of pursue the same uh, concerns and commitments as we did before, or can't pursue them in quite the same way. So I think what happens uh, in grief is that our kind of ethical orientation to the world, toward the world is disrupted. But in being disrupted, it's also a, a tool for finding our way back to a sort of new relationship to the world and a new relationship to ourselves. When we grieve, I think we're discovering right, the significance of uh, the person who died, the significance they had for us. We're also discovering a good bit about our own values and, and concerns. And so I think grief is, as I was saying earlier, a kind of tool. On the one hand, it alerts us right, to something uh, difficult that has happened to us, the loss of someone we've invested our identities in, but also gives us a set of uh, information, right? Gives us evidence or information about what we cared about and then, you know, what we in fact care about. Right? I think we can learn about ourselves uh, through grieving. We can see just what it was, you know, or why it was that someone mattered to us so much and what our own, you know, sort of deepest values um, and concerns are. But,
0: but you do yeah. warn, you do warn Professor cholby that, we have to be careful not to, quote, over-intellectualize grief. Yeah?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that that's certainly true. I don't want to uh, suggest that, that grief should be thought of as this kind of cerebral seminar room search for self-knowledge. Um, I think and very often we, we acquire the self-knowledge that I think grief can provide us, not necessarily by seeking it really directly, but simply by grieving and trying to uh, you know, restore a sense of, of the world and uh, to, to recover, right, from uh, the deaths of those that, that matter to us. So, you know, as I see it, there is a kind of, you know, epistemic good associated with grief, right? We sort of learn about ourselves by by uh, the interrogation of, of the death of, of uh, someone who mattered to us. But I don't think of this whole process as itself sort of consisting in in the sifting through of evidence exactly. I think we learn a great deal, for example, you know, when we you know, uh, unexpectedly say, you know, feel anger toward a a deceased person right in the course of grieving, you know, you might, that might happen to you, you might think, well, what's that about? You know, I didn't expect to be angry. You know, why was I angry? Well, that says maybe something about your relationship with with this person. And that in turn says something about what matters to you, right? If you find that you were angry, say, toward, uh, you know, a relative who's now died, uh, because you know they, uh, I don't know, didn't uh, didn't attend your 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 college or university graduation. Say when they said they would, that says something I think about your own values and concerns, right? That's very telling about about what matters to you. So you know, again, I think we should feel fortunate that we grieve because I think it is this sort of uh, really rich vein of evidence about what we care about.
0: You warn also against the quote medicalization of grief. What what, what is that? medicalization? And, and what, uh, what, what, are the, what are the dangers of that? Uh, this is a uh, last question,
1: Michael. <laughs> sure. Okay. Thanks. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, let me begin by saying that uh, a couple things I don't mean. One thing I don't mean to suggest is that those whose grief becomes um, so difficult, so prolonged, so uh, emotionally vexatious, that they could benefit, say, from from professional help uh, from, from therapists or other mental health professionals. I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't get it, nor am I suggesting that grief can't um, sometimes be a precursor to the development of you know, recognizable uh, mental disorders, say depression or anxiety or something like that. So to be as precise as I can about it, what I'm anxious about when people talk about, uh, you know, prospect that grief is a kind of disorder or that we can sort of be sick with grief, is I think it suggests that there's something uh, sort of innately or inherently pathological to grief. And that seems to me to be a a dangerous proposition. As I said, I think we need grief, right? Grief is our way of, again, alerting our own psyches to the importance of, of something that's happened. Again, on my theory that someone in whom we've invested our practical identity has died, but also, again, a powerful motivator for and uh, source of evidence of um, the sort of transformation of our own identities, the transformation of our own values and concerns. So I worry, you know, with, uh, about the suggestion that's been made in some quarters that we should be talking about, you know, introducing, say, a, a disorder, you know, complicated grief disorder a prolonged grief disorder, only because I think that. You know, when we introduce that kind of verbiage, when we when we introduce that kind of vocabulary, we're invited to see ourselves and our own reactions as um, not sort of the best uh, of ourselves, but a kind of betrayal of ourselves. And I don't think that grief is is a betrayal of ourselves. I think it's actually, uh, you know, a representation of, of some of the best features of human beings: our ability to respond meaningfully to to the realities in our world, uh, even when they're difficult or troubling and also uh, a tool with which to adapt to those realities. So I, I again, don't want to suggest that that medicine has no useful role to play vis-a-vis grief, but I do think we should be hesitant about um, inviting uh, us to see ourselves, right, and see our own grieving as itself a kind of sickness or deficiency in us.
0: The book is Grief, A Philosophical Guide. Professor Cholby, thank you for joining us.